We're working through a series in Romans this year at church. I'm going to read for us uh, the passage Ben's going to be preaching from today, and that's from Romans chapter 4, reading from verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin, is the, whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Thanks, Ross. Good morning. My name's Ben. If we haven't met, it is great that we can be here and look at this passage. We're going to look at the whole chapter 4, but let's pray before we do that. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the privilege and the pleasure it is to gather in one room and open up your word. We pray, Lord, that you'd speak to us. We pray that you'd change us and transform us. And we pray that we would be different people because we encountered the living God. And so we pray that you'd give us ears to hear and hearts to understand this morning. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So I love the feeling of safety. I love the feeling of being secure and having that uh, moment where you can finally rest. And there's a few things that give me this feeling of safety. Uh, throughout my life, there's a few things that I've experienced that allow me now to kind of rest. The first one is whenever it rains. This is a little bit weird, but as a kid, I always thought that I was safe when it rained because kidnappers didn't want to go out in the rain. They didn't want to get wet, and so I was safe. And so now, every time it rains, I just have this sense of safety, that everything is all good. There's another thing from my childhood that makes me feel safe, and it's whenever I see this guy, Ricky Ponting. <laughs> I grew up in the 90s, uh, early thousands, and whenever Ricky Ponting would come out to play, we watched a lot of cricket in our house, and this guy made me feel safe. It was his great cricket shots, it was the three-quarter sleeves, it was the hairy arms, everything about him makes me feel safe. And now, if I hear him commentate, it's all good. It doesn't matter what's going on, it's all good. There is another thing in more recent years that makes me feel safe, though, and it's whenever I hear the sound of our favorite TV show, whenever the Office soundtrack comes on in our house, the US one, of course, I feel safe. It doesn't matter what's happening in our life. You know, we can have the craziest week, but if Michael Scott's on our TV screen, everything is okay. Everything is all right. If you know, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, that's okay. But these things make me feel safe. Now, I wonder when you think about it, what is it that makes you feel safe? Maybe it's the triple deadlock door at the front of your house. Maybe it's just being at home that makes you feel safe. Maybe it's peace and quiet, time alone, time in your, in, in your favorite cafe. Maybe it's time with people. Maybe it's any of those things or something else that makes you feel safe. But see, this morning, as we think about this idea of safety, I wonder if you've ever considered it before God. Right? Is it possible before the living God that we can possibly have this feeling of safety, that everything is okay, that we can finally rest, especially since the stuff we've looked at in the last few weeks is quite confronting? 
You know, we've been reflecting in this series in Romans that God is the creator and he's also the judge. So he's big and powerful and awesome and just and he's going to hold all of us accountable. And then there's us, not big, not powerful, flawed people, sinful people, not good people. And so is it possible then between God and us that we can have this feeling of safety, that we can have this feeling that everything is okay, that we can rest in this relationship that we have with our Creator? Well, as we look at Romans 4 today, we're going to see Paul speak into this. And he's going to speak into this idea of how we can be safe and what this means for us. And he begins by actually speaking about how people were made right with God or safe before God in the Old Testament. Now, notice how he does this. He starts in verse 1. And he says, What uh, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. So how can we have this sense of safety? Well, Paul begins by looking back to the Old Testament. And he points out that in the Old Testament you were made right before God, you were safe before God by faith. You know, we can often fall into the trap of thinking the New Testament's about grace and the gift and the Old Testament's about law and works, but Paul corrects that here. And he does so by looking at two guys, Abraham and then in the next few verses, David, and he looks at these guys because these guys are some of the big boys of the Old Testament. They are the kind of the big people, the big players in the Old Testament. Abraham was the patriarch, you know, the father, literally the father of Israel. And then you've got David, one of the kings, the key kings of the Old Testament. And Paul looks at both of these people and he shows that for both of them, Abraham and David, they weren't saved by what they do. They weren't saved because they were good. They were saved by faith. Abraham was saved by faith. David was saved by faith. Which was important because if you look at both of those guys, neither of them were perfect. You know, if you look at Abraham and you dig a little bit deeper, you see he's pretty like, I don't know, he's pretty on the edge there. You know, he he did some things you wouldn't be proud of. He slept with his slave girl. He told people his wife wasn't his wife and nearly got her married off to some foreign kings. Not good. David slept with Bathsheba and then got her husband killed at the front line of battle. That's also not good. But when reflecting on Abraham and David, Paul says both of these guys weren't saved by what they did. They were saved by faith. They were saved by faith, faith in God. Abraham was saved by faith. David was saved by faith. And so he corrects something here. He corrects, he points back in the Old Testament, he says, this is how you were safe in the Old Testament. Now, this feels a little bit strange for me, because Paul is speaking here probably to Jews at this point in the church. The church was made up in Rome of Jews and Gentiles, and he's speaking to Jews who were familiar with the Old Testament. You know, they grew up reading the Old Testament, they knew what it said. So why is he pointing back to something that they should have already known? Well, it's for two reasons that that we see in this passage. Two misunderstandings of the Old Testament that Jewish people and, and subsequently all people might have when they read the Old Testament. Two misunderstandings he's correcting here. The first misunderstanding is that you're saved by what you do. He's correcting this idea that you are saved by your obedience to the law. You know, the the Jewish people often had this idea that what they did made them right before God. So, you know, we've seen this in the past. With Jesus, there's some religious leaders who give a tenth of everything they've got, including their herbs and spices. 
this flowed down to the average Jew where they thought if they were good enough, if they ticked the right boxes, then they'd be right before God. You know, that they'd be good before God. And the word to describe this attitude is legalism. It's this idea, that legalism describes this idea that what I do makes me right before God. But you see, when you reflect on this misunderstanding from the Jews of how the Old Testament works, I think you begin to realize that it's not just a Jewish thing, it's something within all human hearts. All humanity have this issue that deep down we are legalists, right? I mean, think about it today. If we go out to the average Australian and ask them this question, how do you think God sees you right now? Or do you think you're good enough for God? What do you think the average Australian would say to that? I think they'd say, I'm pretty good. You know, we know in Australia we're not perfect, right? No one's perfect. But I think generally we all think that we're good enough because we're not that bad. We're pretty good. We're doing our best. And so before God, surely we are good enough. The average Australian has this attitude in our heart that we are legalists. But obviously it's not just an Australian thing for the average person out there. This is true within us as well. Right, like I wonder if you think about it this morning, if you answered the question, how do you think God sees you right now? See, I reckon if we answered that question, we'd have a room over here of people who had good weeks who think God sees us as good. And over here, we'd have people who had bad weeks and we'd think God sees us as bad. Because deep down, this is our default setting. That my actions reflect God's heart towards me and if I have a good week, then God sees me as good. You know, if, if work is going well, if family life is all intact, if I read my Bible, if I pray, if I make it to church on time, if I'm doing all the religious stuff, God sees me as good. And if we don't, if we have a bad week, if we have a fight, if we, we get into those problems with friendships and relationships, then God views us negatively. You know, I, I do this all the time. I find myself fighting this where I have this idea that God sees me better or worse because of my week. By default, humans are legalists. You know, we think that God views us according to our works. But Paul corrects this misunderstanding. And he says, listen, that was never true in the Old Testament. It wasn't true for Abraham and it wasn't true for David. But he also says something else here. He says, if you think about your obedience to the law, the law can't be the solution for you. The law can't make you good. In fact, he says, and we see this in verse 15, he says, the law brings wrath. Now, what he's saying in that moment is the law shows us the problem. It doesn't show us the solution. The law reveals the problem. So in some ways, it's kind of like an x-ray. You know, I don't know if you can think of the last time you had an x-ray. A few years ago, I had one on what people uh, suspected was a broken ankle, and it wasn't in the end. But no one goes into an x-ray thinking that that x-ray is going to show them the solution to the problem. Right? Like, no one goes in with a broken ankle thinking that the x-ray is going to fix the problem. X-rays are good, but they're good at revealing the problem, not showing it, not fixing it. If we want a solution to the problem, we need something else. And this is what Paul is kind of saying, the law reveals the problem. It's not the solution to the problem. We need something else for that. The law reveals wrath. The law brings wrath. The law shows us that we fall short of God's glory, that we lack his glory. And so we need something else. So he corrects the misunderstanding, that you can be good enough through what you do. But there's a second misunderstanding he corrects, and the second one is from verses 9 through to 12. And in this, Paul talks a lot about circumcision here in verse 9 to 12. Uh, I don't think I've got it on the screen, 
But uh, if you've got your Bibles there as well, you can see it there. Uh, In verse 9 to 12, he talks a lot about circumcision, but when he's talking about that, he's basically talking about being an Israelite. You know, it's a little bit strange, but, but they understood it back then, that he's talking about being an Israelite. And he's saying, if you're an Israelite, that too doesn't make you right before God. You see, the misunderstanding was people thought that because of their skin color, that they were right before God, that they were safe. But Paul corrects this. And he says Abraham was not justified. He was not made right before, uh, after he was circumcised, but before. And what he's showing us in that moment is actually that skin color doesn't save, that it wasn't simply their bloodline that made them right before God. Now, we too can think this. You know, there can be an attitude for us that our skin color somehow makes us better or worse. Or we can actually take it a step further and go, it's not just our skin color, but it's our lineage. It's our family line. It's what our family did growing up. They brought me to church my whole life, so I'm good with God. But it's a misunderstanding because you're not saved by what you do. You're not saved by your obedience to the law and you're not saved by your skin color. You're not made right through the color of your skin or what your family did or your lineage. No, for that we need something else. And so Paul goes, look, let's look back. Abraham was saved by faith. David was saved by faith, not by what they do and not the color of their skin. Now, as we read this and see this in the Old Testament, it's worth asking the question, is this still true in the New Testament? Is this God's pattern for how people are made right before God for all time or just for Abraham and David? Because it's all good for them, but what about for us? Well, this is where he goes. And, And we see him talking about this from verse 16. And he says this, Therefore the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring." Not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made your father of many nations. He is the father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. So the two big things that we see in this moment is that the pattern of the old is the pattern of the new and today, that we're saved by faith. And secondly, it's guaranteed. So firstly, today... In the New Testament, we're not saved by what we do. We're not saved by the color of our skin. We are saved by faith. We are saved when we put our trust in God, when we let go of our ability and we put our trust in the God who sent Jesus to die on the cross and rise again. That's how we're made right before God. That's how we are declared safe. Now, when we read this idea that we're saved by faith, it's kind of like uh, this. So a few years ago, I used to go fishing a lot at Stradbroke Island off the rocks there. And uh, we'd never go if it was dangerous. This isn't Straddy, but it was kind of in my mind what it felt like. We'd never fish if it was dangerous. We'd only go if it was calm. But regardless of that, every day that we would go, uh, I would have nightmares the night before that I couldn't sleep the night before because I kind of had this sense that I was going to fall off the rocks (laughs) into the water and, you know, facing wave after wave. And, you know, that'd be it. And the image of a fisherman falling off the rocks is something that we hear a little bit about um, in the news. But but what brought me peace, and, you know, maybe it was a little bit naive, but what brought me peace was knowing that the Surf Lifesaving Club could kind of see us when we were fishing. And there was this one time where a Surf Lifesaving jet ski came by. I don't think they were checking on us, but, you know, in my mind, I convinced myself of that. And so... I would convince myself at night as I was going to sleep and having this nightmare of falling off the rocks that if that happened, the surf lifesavers would come and get me. 
in their jet ski. They'd come and they would save me. But see, this picture of a fisherman in the water there, falling off into the water, facing wave after wave, you know, the the strong undercurrents, and then a jet ski coming to save them. If you can picture that, what does it require from the person needing saving? What does it require from them to do? You see, it requires two things from them in that moment. The first thing it requires from them is they need to actually say that they don't have the ability, right? That they can't get out of that moment. You know, it requires you. You don't ask for help unless you realize you need it, and they need to realize that they can't swim out, that they can't face the waves, they can't fight the undercurrents. They need to admit their inability to save themselves. But then the second thing they need to do is they need to take the help. They need to hold on to the solution, knowing that that's the only thing that's going to get them out of that moment. Now, in some ways, that's kind of what Paul is speaking about here. This is the idea that he's getting at with faith. It's this idea that we find ourselves in a problem. The law brings wrath. We find ourselves in a situation pretty desperate where we face wave after wave of God's justice. And the undercurrents mean that we can't swim back, that we can't do anything. And in that moment, what he's been saying is your ability doesn't do anything. You notice that when you're drowning, it doesn't matter if you can get to church. It doesn't matter if you're good enough. It doesn't matter if you can preach a sermon or be nice to your kids in that moment. It doesn't matter what you do because you're drowning. But for us to get out of that, to find the solution, we actually need to recognize that we can't do it. We can't save ourselves. But Paul's saying that there is a solution. The law brings wrath, but the solution is Jesus, that he entered into this world, that he died on the cross and rose again. And if we put our trust in him, not in ourselves, if we're letting go of our own ability and put our trust in him, it's here that we can be saved. It's here that we can be safe and secure. So that's the first thing he says. The pattern of the old is the pattern of the new. But then he says the second thing here that's, that's really amazing is that this is guaranteed. He says, by grace, since we're saved by faith and not our own ability, this is guaranteed. And we see this in these verses here in verse 16 as well. He says, the promise may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. Now, I love this idea of something being guaranteed because pretty much nothing in life is guaranteed. You know, we like to think that it is, but it's not. You know, it was this time last year pretty much that we didn't know that we'd go into a lockdown. And if we just consider the last 12 months, we didn't know we'd go into a lockdown. We didn't know what that lockdown would bring. We didn't know when we would get out of it or if we'd get out of it. We didn't know what devastating effects there would be of a lockdown. We didn't know that a vaccine would come. You know, pretty much everything in the last 12 months through the idea that life is guaranteed up in the air. We like to think that stuff is guaranteed, but it's not. Nothing is. We always change. Our situations change. We change. Everything always, constantly changes. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And we don't know because that's just a part of life. Because everything created changes. But Paul says in this moment that when we put our trust in Jesus, it's guaranteed. It's sure. It's not going to change. And the reason it's guaranteed is because it's based on and grounded in the Creator, who stays the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. You see, when we put our trust in Jesus by faith, we're actually going, it's not in me. I don't have the ability to do this. But I'm putting my trust, I'm holding on to someone who does. And since we're holding on to Jesus in this moment, 
It's guaranteed. Now, this is kind of a little bit fun. He goes, you want to know how this is guaranteed? Let's look at some promises that God made in the past that against all odds didn't look like would come off, and they did. And the first one he says is, you want to look at this guarantee? He says, let's look at Abraham. Abraham became a father at 99 years old, and his wife was 100. Now, those aren't childbearing years, right? Like, you know, I know the age of parenting is getting older, but no one is saying, I'll wait to 100. You know, in fact, we had a, a baby recently, Elizabeth and I, and it's given me a newfound respect for Sarah. 100 years old and a mum, man, I don't want that. But that happened with Sarah, and it happened with Abraham, and it wasn't like, you know, my attitude towards it. It was a good thing, because it was a promise to them that they would have a son. Now, Abraham believed in the promise. In verse 21, you see this, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. Sarah was barren, like it wasn't meant to happen, and it wasn't through his own ability, it wasn't through some weird science that it happened. No, it was because God made it happen. And if God says something's going to happen, it's going to happen. And Abraham and Sarah had a baby. But then, Jesus says, uh, then Paul says, let's look at another example, and he goes to Jesus. And, and he points this out from verse 23 to 25, and he says, for Jesus, the promise was that he would die, but then be raised back to life. God's word said his Holy One won't see decay. And so we see Jesus die, publicly was crucified. And then they made sure of it by putting the spear in him, wrapping him in cloths, placing him in a tomb with a stone in front of it, with a guard in front of that. There's no way, humanly speaking, that body is coming out. But what happened? Jesus was raised back to life because God promised it. And if God promises something will happen, it doesn't matter if the world says it's not, it will happen. If God says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And we, we see that in verse 25 spells this out for us. Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins to take our punishment and was raised to life for our justification so that we can know that we are right before God and more than just right before God, safe, secure in all that Jesus has done. This promise is guaranteed. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but when we put our trust in Jesus, we can know that this is sure. It's as sure as Abraham and Sarah having a kid. It's as sure as Jesus being raised back to life. So we see in the Old Testament, the pattern to be right before God was by faith. And this pattern was the same in the New Testament. It's the same today. And when we put our faith in Jesus, when we put our trust in him, we can be saved. We can know that we are safe and secure and it's guaranteed. Now, it raises the question as we get to the end of this passage, what does this mean for us? And, and we're going to reflect on this right throughout the book of Romans because as we see in Romans, faith changes our life. And we, we reflect on that. We, we reflect on it last week. We saw that when we grasp this truth, that it, it affects us with our boasting. But this week, as we see this passage, the thing that comes to my mind is this idea. When we get that we're saved by faith, not our own works, not our skin color, not anything to do with our ability, but when we get we're saved by faith and what Jesus has done, the impact that has on us is that we can rest. You know, we've been looking at the prodigal son in this series. And if you've been with us, you've heard it before. And if you, you haven't, it's a story that Jesus tells in Luke 15, I think. And it's a story that Jesus tells of uh, two, youngest, two sons, not two younger sons, one younger, one older, that rebel against their father. But we've been thinking about the younger son. And the younger son 
runs off from his father, tells his father that he wishes his father was dead, and then takes all his money and goes and chases sex and ambition and the good life, and it doesn't deliver, because it never delivers. And he finds himself in this pig trough, in the mud, and he comes to his senses, and he, he has this moment where he wants to go back home to the father. But if you're familiar with the story, do you remember what he says? Because there's this moment where he's kind of, the picture's almost, he's covered in mud, but he has this idea, he has these words where he says, I'm going to go back home, and the offer to my father is, I'm going to go back as a hired servant. I'm going to go back to work. Now, everyone listening in that moment, as you hear the story and the younger son's offer, everyone thinks that, that's, that the father's going to take that. You know, work off the debt that he spent. Work off the relationship problems, the relationship deficit, just to work back right into the family and get things back in order. Everyone's thinking that. The younger son's thinking that. The older son's thinking that. The listener's thinking that. But what do we see from the father? He doesn't say, come back and work for me. He runs to him. He throws him a party and he invites him back in the family not to work, but as a child. And when you're a child, there's safety in the home. There's rest there. You see, we often think that if we're going to come home to the Father, the only way back in is by working, but Paul's correcting this. And he's saying it's not through your works, it's through faith. That's how we are saved. And when we grasp that we're saved not by what we do, we can rest. We can stop running. We can stop working so hard to make it right, and we can rest. And how much do we need this? How much do we need this today? Like, we live in a fast-paced society where we are all exhausted, all of the time. Now, maybe you're the one person who's not, but the rest of us, we're tired. All of us are tired. You know, life is exhausting. It doesn't matter what season of life we're in, we're just tired. We're tired from the work that we do. We're tired from the work that we do in our workplaces or our job sites or the work at home. We're tired from the work with our families. We're tired from the work to keep our mental health in check. We're tired from our phones being constantly with us. We're tired from always having to be on. But nothing is as exhausting as having to prove yourself. Nothing is as exhausting as a relationship where you always feel like you're on edge, where you always feel like you're stepping on eggshells, and you've got to prove yourself as the, the son or the daughter, the perfect son or daughter or the perfect friend, or the perfect religious person, you know, who makes their way to church, or the perfect, you know, just the perfect person, the perfect work colleague. Nothing is as exhausting as that when you're always on edge and you're always walking on eggshells. But what's so beautiful about this passage is that it echoes Jesus' words in Matthew 11 where he was talking to people who thought they had to work to be good enough. And Jesus said this, Come to me and I'll give you rest. Stop working. Stop feeling like you're living on edge and enjoy the fact that in Jesus, the work has been done. You see, in everywhere else in life, there is work to be done. But in our relationship with God, because of what Jesus has done, it's finished. We don't have to work anymore. And so we can finally enter into this deep rest, knowing that the most important relationship in our life between us and God is made right in Jesus. 
And when we come by faith, not holding on to our own ability, but holding on to him, we can know this promise is guaranteed. So let's rest in this now. Let's pray. God, it's such good news that we don't have to work our way back into the family. That we don't have to work our way to be right with you. God, actually, when we reflect on the message of the Bible, we see that our efforts and our works just reveal the problem. It just shows us that there's something wrong. But we're so grateful for the message of the Bible from beginning to end that people can be saved by faith, trusting in you. And we're thankful that we see this in Jesus, in his life, his death, and his resurrection, that the work is finished. And so, Father, we pray that we would grasp this truth, that before us and you, we are not living on edge. We are not kind of living, walking on eggshells, not sure how you're going to react or treat us, but we can know that in Jesus, your love is sure and our relationship is fixed and that the promise to be made right is guaranteed. Help us live in this safety and enjoy this safety and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.